When I went to Cameroon, I just absolutely loved it. The food, the people, the climate, you know, the conversations with people and, and the meaning that I found there. Welcome to I Am an Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, and yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. In this week's episode, I talk with Dr. Amber Murray. Amber is a professor in human geography at Oxford University and is originally from the USA. She has travelled extensively and lived in several different countries. Amber's wide-ranging and fascinating work focuses largely on resistance and social change in Africa, and I have provided a link in the show notes to some of her writing. We didn't delve into her work in this podcast, though. Instead, we spoke about growing up in small-town USA, the implications of being in a biracial relationship, and despite the UK government's refrain about welcoming so-called highly skilled migrants, Amber talked about the difficulties she faced when seeking visas for her children to come and live with her here. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My name is Amber Murray, and I am an immigrant. Thank you for coming on the show, Amber. It's great to have you. From what I gather, you, you've moved around a lot in your life. You're originally from the US and it seems like, you know, moving is very much part of your thing in life. So although you're not a typical immigrant in the sense that you do move from place to place, do you feel like an immigrant? I presently feel very much like an immigrant, yes. And it's true that for most of my adult life, I have been an immigrant or an internal migrant. I have not lived where I grew up since I was 18. I was raised by a single mother who is also quite libertarian, and the family ethos was to stay in the United States. I, I grew up in a rural town along the Rocky Mountain Range in Idaho. And did you feel at home there? Well, as much as a child who always longs to leave feels at home anywhere, I suppose, it always felt small for me. A vast mountain range felt small. <laughs> Why did it feel small? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I suppose because of the things I was exposed to in literature and television and just popular culture that I always felt somehow stifled by the kind of rural mountain village, you know, most most places would call where I grew up a village, kind of deeply religious, very traditional. Many of the people held similar sets of views about cultural difference and, and political difference. And so I, I grew up just feeling that I wanted more. So what happened when you were 18 then? When I was 18, I went to Seattle University and, you know, just developed new friendships and new relationships and, you know, was able to explore myself and just to grow in a personal capacity and in an intellectual capacity. And did you at that time have ambitions of, of working in academia like you do now? Did you see that as a path for you or did you try on other things first? Absolutely not. I did not at all. I'm a first generation college student. And so, but, you know, actually my mother, again, kind of being libertarian, 
discouraged me actually from getting into to actually even going and doing a bachelor's degree. Um, she told me it wasn't necessary and um, I can, you know, be a strong working woman without that education because there's a sense that higher education in particular is a form of kind of cultural brainwash. And so I didn't have any of the skill sets necessary to actually know what it meant to anticipate a job in, in higher education. I didn't know how someone even became a professor. And it wasn't until later on in my undergraduate degree, I went to Cameroon um, and I ended up staying in, in Cameroon in, in, in Central Africa and working there for a time before coming back to the States. And, and when I came back, I was uh, working in Montana in a job that I just really didn't find satisfying. And so I applied to, to postgraduate studies actually just because I didn't know what else to do. And even when I applied for my master's program, I didn't recognize that that was the path that I was, you know, kind of going down. It just unfolded like that. What took you to Cameroon in your in your undergraduate degree? What was your degree? So I did a, a joint degree in anthropology and sociology, and I minored in in French. You know, it was my interest in French language probably that narrowed down Cameroon as a place where I could study abroad. When I went to Cameroon, I just absolutely loved it. The food, the people, the climate, the the everyday, you know, the conversations with people and and the meaning that I found there. And so then that was really obviously a pivotal moment in 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 my life. And can you talk a little bit more about the meaning that you found there? So one useful illustration for me is that if two white Americans get on a bus and the first one sits in the front row and then the second comes on the bus, the second white American will, will sit very far away from the first person. And in Cameroon, the first Cameroonian gets on the bus and sits in the front row and the second Cameroonian sits right next to that person and starts a conversation. And so it's just that kind of the culture of camaraderie and the questions that people ask are very different. It's not you know, what do you do for a living or, you know, those sorts of questions, where did you go to school, but rather, let me tell you a story about something that happened to me this morning that was really interesting. And so with just those little things that I really enjoyed. Of course, I was in my early 20s at the time. And so it was just really about feeling curiosity and feeling alive. And then, of course, I met um, Daroji, who is now my husband. I fell in love. So I was falling in love with the country and I was falling in love with this person. It's a nice combination. Can you tell us about your husband and how you met? Daroji is just this charismatic person who there are so many stories that are just comical about him kind of walking into a room and just someone who has a presence. And the first time that we met was just through a group of friends. So I had been invited to go out to a cafe to play pool. And Daroji was, well, I didn't know it at the time, but he was the national pool, like billiards champion of Cameroon. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so when you watch him play billiards, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's a performance. It's an artistic performance. He just has this grace. And so, of course, I noticed him. We didn't really chat until then later. I was waiting outside for a taxi and he came outside and he began a conversation with me and he was asking, you know, oh, what do you 
you doing in Cameroon? And I mentioned that at the time I was working at a community center teaching and tutoring English. And he kind of said, oh, another white person in Cameroon teaching English. I've met so many people like you. And so we got into this kind of debate about what I was doing there. And I really appreciated it because you know, the kind of the honesty that that it demonstrated and the confidence. And I just got into my taxi and I left and I didn't think, you know, that I would obviously see him again. And then we just, you know, randomly ran into each other on the street one day and it happened to be a national holiday. It was National Youth Day. And so he asked me if I would go with his friends and I did. And, you know, that's that's how it happened. That's how it happened. But it was a kind of meeting of minds in a way in the beginning. And how long have you been together now? We've been together for 13 years. Okay. So that sort of tethered you to, to Cameroon, really. I, I mean, I guess you had a lovely time there, but but obviously there was there was more to it than, than just the country and, and the experience. So what happened then? How where, When did you start moving around and sort of making the relationship work long distance and all of that sort of stuff? That must have been tough. It was very difficult. So I went back to the States and it just so happened that the, the work in the community center wasn't going to come to much fruition. And so I was working for AmeriCorps, which is the domestic branch of the Peace Corps in, again, a very rural place, Great Falls, Montana. And, uh, we, you know, we worked really hard and we were able to get Deroji to come over and join me after about 11 months. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, we have obviously had a, a series of experiences being an interracial couple really everywhere that we've lived. But it started in, in Great Falls. 11 months. Wow. Gosh, that's a long time to, to be apart after a sort of first romance. It was. And uh, Christine, if I can remind you that this was before the time of WhatsApp and yeah. before Facebook calls, before smartphones. And so I was really, really lucky that the telephone provider that I had had failed to charge my international calls, which I was making frequently, <laughs> properly, because otherwise it wouldn't have been feasible. But we, we spoke every day for multiple hours a day. And that's how we amazing. And you just didn't get charged. <laughs> well, I got charged for the last kind of couple of months when they noticed it. Um, <laughs> did you write letters? Or it was all it was all on the phone. No, we did emails. Otherwise, it was just telephone conversation. Mm -hmm. Deroji came over um, to the US for a while. Um, no. So at that time when he came over, then we were married shortly thereafter. You know, we went back to Idaho for a ceremony. Also having that tension, I mean, in terms of being a migrant, all of those telephone conversations and all of those emails had to go into the documents that we submitted to the Department of Homeland Security and, you know, the things that went into eventually obtaining his U.S. citizenship. Had your husband left Cameroon before that? Uh, no, he hadn't. And so what, what were his impressions of, of the US? Mm, very mixed. It was challenging for him to arrive in such a rural and predominantly white place. He didn't have contacts with Cameroonians in the diaspora because there, you know, there weren't many in the place where we were living at the time. 
I mean, actually, we were both quite unhappy in Great Falls, you know, which we just found to be quite limiting. And so I applied to postgraduate school and I was accepted with funding to go to Syracuse University in New York. And so we in that summer, we moved to Oregon, which is where my father lives and his family. And so we had a couple of months living in Oregon before then we I had a Nissan Versa and we drove across the US to New York. And it, you know, it was such a good experience. Um, I mean, night and day in terms of where he needed to be, certainly, and then also where I needed to be. And you mentioned you'd had various experiences as an interracial couple. Are they both negative and positive? Well, probably the negatives outweigh the positives. Yeah. Um, This, of course, in 2008, 2009, 2010, is before the kind of national media coverage around racial profiling practices among American police officers. And so we felt it immediately that things would happen like I would be driving the car and observing all of the traffic laws and we would be pulled over and he would be pulled out of the car and interrogated and then we would be let go. That happened in Oregon to us. It happened um, in New York several times. Um, It happened, you know, in states we were just driving through. It happened in Pennsylvania. Um, It happened in Ohio. And so there was just very clear degree of just the racial profiling. And then the big thing that happened to us was one evening we were out um, in downtown Syracuse. So we speak French together and we were walking down the streets and Central Africans and West Africans in general tend to um, speak loudly. And so that was one of the early things my husband noticed is that people tell him to quiet down. So we were just speaking, you know, as we normally do on the side of the road and two white police officers walked up to us and they asked me if I was being bothered by this man. I was outraged, obviously. And I said, what do you mean am I being bothered by this man? This is my husband. They said, okay, just move along. Well, we had been moving and they were the ones who stopped us. And Darius she just kind of said, well, why did you stop us in in the first place? And the police officer said, okay, you're resisting a police order. You're under arrest. And it all happened within 30 seconds. And so then Daroji is yelling and I'm yelling and we're both frightened and both of the police officers are pushing him up against the brick wall of a building next to us. And they have, you know, one of his arms up above his head, which they're trying to get back behind his back so that they can put the handcuffs on him. And I was screaming and I, I had a flip phone at the time and I was filming the incident and, you know, calling the police officers racist and saying we were doing nothing wrong. You know, the one police officer officer turns back to me and closes my phone and, you know, tells me, tells me to shut the F up. So I just started screaming at everyone who was walking by telling them what an injustice was happening. And so then I got arrested for disturbing the peace. And so we were both taken to holding cells and we were held overnight and, I was irate. I mean, I just yelled at the police officers the entire time I was being transferred and then the entire time I was being booked in. 
And I had apparently insulted them to such a degree that the sergeant who was on duty refused me a drink of water. They wouldn't let me, you know, make a telephone call, which our daughter was with a babysitter. And then the next day we were brought before the judge and I wasn't given a public defender. The charges that the prosecutor, um, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was in the police report. It was she was calling us racist. Well, yes, I was calling you racist because you were being racist. And the judge told me to shut up or the judge was going to plead guilty on my behalf. And so I just stood there until then. Obviously, I never was allowed to say anything and the case was dismissed and then I was released. Um, But that really had an impact on us in terms of we had felt very confident and empowered in all of our encounters with the police before that time. And then after that, like that was when we I was pulled over just driving through the state of Pennsylvania. And I just said to Darji, just answer all of the questions. You know, we need to get home. Let's just get through this. Wow. Did that affect your decision to leave the US? It affected everything because I felt like every time he went out, If he didn't answer my phone, I was legitimately frightened because there's so many daily encounters. And yeah, so it was certainly for me one of the reasons why I don't want to live in the U.S. Hey there. It's been lovely hearing your feedback about the podcast through our social channels and email. Please continue getting in touch mainly so I don't feel like I'm speaking into a vast black void. My daughter Neve is back with some announcements for you. I've told my friends, teacher and family about my mum's podcast. And why don't you tell your friends and family? They might be looking for something to listen to over the summer break. Also, my mum and me would love it if you could write a short review on iTunes or rate the podcast with five stars. Okay, back to the conversation. When you did leave the US, where did you go next? Um, Well, I came to the UK because I was doing my PhD. And at that time, Deraji had remained because he needed to get his citizenship. So this entire time, he didn't yet have his citizenship. He was still traveling on a Cameroonian passport. And so I would travel back and forth from the UK to the States. And then we went back to Cameroon for a year, which is where I did my field work for my PhD. And then I got a position at Boston College. So then we moved to Boston for a year. And that was a dissertation write-up fellowship. So then I finished my PhD from Boston. And then my first position after the PhD was a visiting assistant professorship at Jima University in Ethiopia. So then we moved to Jima. And then after that, I got a job in Worcester, also Massachusetts, at Clark University. So I'm I'm dizzy. I'm dizzy right now listening to this. (laughs) It's a lot of moving around. By that time, we had Sankara, who's our second child, who she was born while we were in Boston. And then you know, we, you know, had a couple of different opportunities to for different jobs, one in the US, one in Cairo at the American University in Cairo in Egypt, both of us were so fatigued with the US at that time. So then we went to Cairo. And then from Cairo, I got the permanent position in the UK. 
Okay. Wow. That is, and you had two little children as well. Oh my goodness. So what did you do then to have a sense of of home and place when you were moving so many times from place to place and meeting new people all the time? Did you have any kind of ritual that you (laughs) observed? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, there are lots of ideas about whether or not a person should move. And, you know, I found this particularly with people who they haven't moved as much and they're more, most curious about the children. Well, you know, what impact has this had on the children? And actually, because the children knew this as normal and we never contextualized it differently for them, even now, actually, my eldest daughter, you know, she's itching to board a plane. And she would be one of those people who, if she could, she would book in to have a meal on a grounded aircraft just because she likes that experience. But no, we didn't have a ritual. We have had a lot of really, really great friendships. You know, I'm appreciative for all of the friends that we've made and we've remained in contact with them. And so sometimes we go back to places. I was back in Cairo in 2019. And of course, we're in Cameroon all the time. And I have a couple of research projects in Ethiopia. So these aren't completed portions of our life, I think. So we got to the point where you uh, had been offered this permanent position at Oxford University in the UK. Did you think, okay, this is going to be another move, but it should be straightforward? We did. We were very enthusiastic about the position and very enthusiastic about the prospect of having a permanent job. And certainly for Malicia, who we felt that she needed some permanence in terms of her education and the curriculum. So we were very optimistic. Okay. And so you said about filling in the forms and doing what was required of you for the visa? Yeah. Well, from the beginning, it wasn't straightforward, of course. Um, So we had been living in Cairo and we went to Cameroon after that position finished and we were set to apply from Cameroon. And the idea was that the entire family would apply together. Unfortunately, it immediately became clear that it was actually structurally impossible for any of us to apply for the visa on the terms that we needed from within Cameroon. And so this was a five-year tier two worker visa for me. And the visa payment system, which is operated by WorldPay, they would not accept any payment for that visa from within Cameroon, except if the credit card was registered to Cameroon. So none of this was clear to me. I wasted weeks of my life. So I got my sister-in-law's debit card and still the payment wouldn't go through. And so I had to end up going to my sister-in-law's bank to speak to the manager who said that the amount of money that I'm trying to pay, which was over 1 million Central African francs, there is no credit card or debit card in the country of Cameroon that will ever accept a transaction over that amount. So it is actually impossible to apply for a tier two general worker visa from within Cameroon because World Pay discriminates on applicants from certain countries. So I had to fly back to Egypt 
So actually wow. from within Cameroon, I made the application to get my UK visa. And I said that I was applying from Egypt. And from Egypt, I immediately had three additional payment options. I could pay with PayPal and a couple of others I didn't recognize. And so I used my credit card, which was registered to an account in the United States from within Cameroon, saying I was applying from Egypt, and the application immediately went through. You know, I already had to push back my start date by a week because I had lost so much time and no one knew what was going on. I had been in touch with the university, everyone, you know, TSL Contact, which is the private company that now manages all of the UK immigration stuff, and and nobody knew. So, So we lost that first year of me traveling back and forth because because by then the girls were in school in Cameroon. And so then the idea was, okay, there we will apply for them for the following year. And so then the following year, my husband had work things that he had committed to. And so the idea was, well, the girls need to come and join me now. So we applied and then they were denied entry clearance. Just to go back, you you had spent quite a long period of time, it sounds like, in the UK by yourself. So the first year, yeah. And it, I mean, I was just fortunate because of the way that Oxford's on a termly system. And so I was able to come over for nine weeks and then go back for a couple of weeks. And then I was traveling back and forth quite a bit. That must have been hard. It was excruciating. So you applied for the visas for your daughters, not for your husband, because he was going to stay for a while, submitted all the evidence you needed to submit. Now, as I understand it, the crucial bit of it was that they said the girls could only live in the UK if both parents were living in the UK, despite the fact that you had shown them written evidence that you and your husband had agreed that this is how it was going to be. So can you just explain what their reasoning was for refusing the visa? Yeah, so that's precisely it. I mean, of course, as anyone who's gone through this process will tell you, they frequently don't give you uh, direct responses to what you should have done differently. So what we received read to me like a standard kind of form letter that they were sending out to anyone. And it was just that we hadn't met this certain statute, which was 319HF. And that's precisely the policy that you stated, that children are only allowed to join a caregiver in the UK in the event that one parent is deceased or both parents are living lawfully together. And so it can't be that one parent has a visitor visa. Both need to have, you know, have permanent status. And so, it, yeah, no consideration was given to the evidence that this was in the children's best interest for to join me, that we had legal consent, which had come from my husband saying that the children need to be with the mother. And so it was all very patronizing because the will of the parent is actually completely disregarded and it's disregarded as if it's in our own best interests. It's under the guise that really they're protecting the parental rights of the parent who doesn't live in the country. Well, you're not respecting the parental rights of the parent who doesn't live in the country if you're not giving any credence to what that parent says they would like to have done with the children. And so it was astounding to us. We were shocked and furious. 
you know, and so I, I sent out a tweet just saying, you know, is there any thought or consideration of what impact this has? And I immediately received dozens of emails from mothers who are immigrants in the UK who have had the same experience. And so it has overwhelmingly been women whose parental rights have not been observed in the name of this law. And it's shocking. I mean, I the examples of other immigrant families who have contacted me have been, in fact, you know, one parent will be living in a completely different country. And so the child is not living with either parents. The child is living with the grandparents precisely because they cannot join the mother because the father's work prohibits the children from living with him. And so there will be evidence from pediatricians and, you know, family practitioners, and it is all disregarded. Wow. So you, how did you find out this information? Did you get a letter? Did you get an email? What, how did you find out the visa was refused? An email. And what was, what was your reaction? Uh, I was completely deflated. I, you know, I was trembling, just, it was really hard. I felt I was furious as well. I was so angry. So then I had a lot of conversations with people. And, and this was also at the same time that there was a lot of media coverage in the United States of children being separated from their families at the border. And so when the Guardian approached me about doing something. I, I also felt somehow guilty because at least my children weren't imprisoned. You know, I mean, it was just the most terrible feeling of being relatively privileged and and yet knowing that this is an impossible situation for our family as well. And so in the end, I when I made the decision to go public with the story, it was really because I felt, um, you know, that as a white American, my relative privilege does protect me from some things. And that if someone is going to go forward with this story and it has to go forward, then maybe it will help other families. I certainly don't regret it. And, you know, not only did it obviously work in our case because the Home Office overturned their decision without our case even going to administrative review. And so that's quite important because that normally shouldn't happen. And not only did that happen in my family's case, but it happened in the case of a of another academic who went public shortly after I did and whose case was also overturned, even though, you know, the administrative review had expired. But so for me, it really exposes the kind of weakness actually in these policies that they're arbitrary and they're like whimsical. And so it makes you feel powerless as well, because you do, there's this sense of people just kind of shuffling papers around and playing with your lives. It must have been so difficult to talk to your kids after that as well, to actually explain to them what had happened and why. I mean, how did you have that conversation with them? Well, they saw me, you know, sobbing. I think it's been more impactful on Malicia, my eldest. That experience of her being denied entry colored her youthful impression of the United Kingdom. She didn't have a hard time understanding at all because 
we had obviously extended conversations with her about race and racism, but it's not something that we've spoken about for quite some time. As you said, it didn't take long for this decision to be overturned. And then from the time of it being overturned, how long then was it until you were able to see them again? It was just a couple of weeks. You know, it was just a matter of booking the flight. And has your husband been able to join you now? Yeah, so he came in November of this year. I guess the pandemic has stopped all the travel. So he got in at the right time, just before? Yeah, I mean, after the first lockdown, obviously, and then we had the second two-week lockdown, and then there seemed to be some optimism going into the holidays. Yeah, so things have obviously changed again now. Are you all starting to feel settled then and feel like, okay, we can sort of exhale a bit now and just make a life here, make a home here? Yeah, we are. Um, we still have difficulties of being a migrant family, and but we feel more settled. How are the kids getting on? I guess they haven't had much school, have they, because of, because of all of the shutdowns, but have they enjoyed going to school here? Yeah, they have. Yeah. Sankara has probably had an easier time of it because she, her age group, they were able to go back after the uh, first lockdown last year, but Malicia wasn't able to go back. Uh, she was in year five. And so, yeah, they've, they arrived just in time for the disruption of COVID-19. I mean, it's been harder on Malicia, certainly. Is Sankara named for Thomas Sankara? Yeah, she is. Yes. <laughs> so she must know the story of her name very well. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. In Cameroon, our friends and family will call her the captain. Oh, that's <laughs> what lovely. What was called, so. That's great. You say it's a very large baggage to put on a child's That is true. Shoulders. Be a revolutionary. Exactly. <laughs> um, look, I've gone over time with, with you, Amber. I really appreciate all the time you've given. I was going to ask a bit more about your work, but I think we've run out of time. And anyone who wants to read any of Amber's work, I'll put some links in the, in the show notes. The last question um, before signing off, what keeps you awake at night? Oh, um, probably concerns about COVID-19, guilt of being away from my family members, particularly those who are growing old, um, and also our in-laws, you know, just the kind of uncertainty of, of COVID-19. And it's all of its variations for the children's education, for my job, for, for everything. I think most people listening can relate to that. <laughs> um, okay, well, look, thank you so much, Amber. It was brilliant having you on the show. Thanks, Christine. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to Amber. I remember reading about the refusal of visas for Amber's daughters in the paper around the same time as I was reading a book she edited about the revolutionary leader of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara. And I thought that was a sure sign I should contact her about this podcast and I'm so glad she agreed. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and do check out the links in the show notes to Amber's work and social media. Please get in touch if there are interesting immigrants you know who would like to be on the podcast. Or maybe that person is you. You have been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. It is supported by the Paul Hamlin Foundation and is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.